Hello, my lovely people, and welcome to The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast with your host, Monty. (laughs) This week, we will be talking about Witness for the Defense, Season 4, Episode 3, first aired October 4th, 1987, and the IMDb summary reads, Jessica goes to Quebec to testify at the trial of a friend who is accused of killing his wife and burning his house down. I'm assuming that it should say down. Okay. (laughs) That's terrible. But let's get into the trivia, the returners, the cast, and then the episode. This one is super dramatic. So there's that. So the fun fact is that in this episode, Grady, Victoria, and Tracy, Jessica's nephew and her two nieces that we've met before are all mentioned in this episode. And it's because each and every one of them were accused of murder that what Jessica had to figure out and get them out of trouble because that's what she does. That's why you call Aunt Jessica so she can get you out of a murder rap that the only reason that you were accused of murder is because you're related to her or her friend. So yeah, a real like catch-22 situation going on in the Jessica Fletcher universe. So fun. Side note, there is also witness for the prosecution, which is based off of an Agatha Christie book and screenplay, if I remember correctly. I do not know how they cross over because I have not seen Witness for the Prosecution, which is available somewhere streaming, I'm sure. Don't quote me on that. But yes, as we know, there is a very interesting connection between Murder, She Wrote, Jessica Fletcher, and Agatha Christie and her Miss Marple specifically. So interesting take. It does not say that this is what the episode is based off of or related to, but just another fun fact. Now let's get into the returners. So first we have Christopher Alport or Allport, and we will recognize him as Donald Granger from If the Frame Fits, season two, episode 22. And I believe he was one of my least favorite characters. I legit hated him. And he was the husband of the rich older sister after having met and dated the younger, slightly less rich sister. So yeah, Spoiler, he murdered the rich wife so that he could get the million dollar life insurance policy because, of course, they had a prenup because the wife was dumb wealthy. And of course, since she was older, she had something to prove. So she threw money around like it was nothing and he had full access to her money. And it was stupid of him to kill her, but he wanted to move his secret affair into public eye, which I doubt because he would have been kicked out of the country club if they found out he was having a relationship with one of their staff members. 
So he did not think this through. He took a million dollar gamble, as he said, and he lost because he did not think this through. In this episode, he plays Jim Harlan, the husband of a murdered woman. Yeah, yeah. That's not great for him. (laughs) So the next returner we have is Marilyn Hassett. We will recognize her as Maggie Earl, the spoiler murderer in Deadly Lady season one, episode two, or episode three, depending on how you calculate the episodes. In this episode, she plays Patricia Harlan, the victim. A nice, well-rounded experience in the Murder, She Wrote universe. So let's get into the whole cast and right into this episode. So we have Jim Harlan, Patricia Harlan, Judith Harlan, who is the mother slash mother-in-law, Clay McLeod, Dr. Cornwall, Barnaby Fryer, Monica Blaine, Attorney Oliver Quayle, Annette Peerage, Fauché, Ruby, Kleber, and His Lordship, which is what they call their judges in this judicial system. We are in Canada for this episode. If Quebec didn't uh, trigger that Quebec that we're talking about here is in Canada. Let's get into this episode. So it starts with Jessica arriving at Oliver Quayle's office in Quebec, and she meets Barnaby, his assistant. And we find out that Jessica got a letter to come. It mentioned something about a trial where her friend James will refer to him as Jim. Harlan is being prosecuted by the Crown. And that her presence is needed, but they don't specify in the letter why she's needed or how we even got here. I don't think it mentions what he was accused of either. So Barnaby is like, ah, I think you should talk to Mr. Quayle about that and he'll give you all the details. So Jessica goes into Quayle's office and he is being fitted for a suit. So this is really uncomfortable for everyone. He's fully dressed. So there's that, but a taste unprofessional. So Jessica is like, where is Jim? I assume that he would be here during this conversation. And Quayle is like, well, I thought that we should have this conversation alone. And Jessica's like, alone? Question mark. There is someone fitting you for a suit. And Quayle is like, ah, yeah, no, don't mind the tailor. It's fine. It's that he's not important. Terrible, right? So... Quayle is asking her to give the details of the events that led up to Jim's wife's death because Jessica was visiting at that time. Of course, Jessica was visiting when somebody was murdered or accidentally died. But clearly the crown believes that Patricia, the wife, was murdered. So Jessica takes us back six months ago. Which, side note, this is super quick for a murder trial. Okay, this is 
super quick. Maybe it's not for 1987 in Quebec, but like, how are forensics even back yet? Okay, anyway. So six months ago, Jessica was visiting at the request of Jim so that she could read his galleys or manuscript, I think, for, that's another word for it, for his second novel, which was about to be published. She had given him positive feedback for his first novel. So that's, and they became friendly after that. So that's why he wanted to have her read his second novel and get her opinion of it. And she said it. she sees the growth in his writing and she enjoyed it. And she wasn't just putting him on. She was being honest. It was well-written and she believes that it would be successful. So he asked her, you know, would you write a review in the Times for me regarding the book? And she says, of course I will if they ask. Jessica, you know they're going to ask. Well, listen, let me take that back. If he makes it to the Times bestsellers list, I'm assuming he means the New York Times bestseller list, then yeah, they're definitely going to ask Jessica as soon as they find out that she's associated with you because she's been on their list uh, many times. So while they're talking in Jim's country home, it's Jim and Ju... Honestly, it's Judith's country home. Let's let's be honest. Patricia, the wife, comes home and she's with her friend Monica. They are former college roommates. Now, Jim refers to her as he as Patricia's ex-roommate. I'm like, who refers to someone as an ex-roommate? Wouldn't it just be former roommate? That was weird to me. I don't know if it was weird to anyone else. Like you have an ex-boyfriend, an ex-girlfriend, ex-wife, an ex-husband. Yeah, semantics. Anyway, so when Patricia and Monica get out of the car, Patricia makes eye contact with the gardener, Clay McLeod, and he winks at her. Mm, interesting. So when they go in, everyone's introducing themselves to Jessica. Monica has only been there for a short amount of time, and Jim has not gotten a chance to sit down and speak to her one-on-one to find out juicy details about Patricia's college life. But not for nothing. Why is my husband sitting down with my college roommate years and years later alone? Like, why why are you trying to get some one-on-one time with her? I'm uncomfortable with this. I'm not an insecure person. But when the insecure person say that? But anyways... (laughs) But honestly, that's weird to me. Maybe it's just me, but that seems weird. And so he kind of doubles down on it, but we'll get there in a second. So Jessica notices the beautiful diamond brooch that Patricia is wearing. And we find out that it was a gift from Jim to Patricia on their first anniversary. And Jim tells us that it was an heirloom from his grandmother. At this point, Jim then goes back to trying to get some one-on-one with Monica. Like, dude, calm the heck down. 
it comes up that Monica's like, ah, mm, no. So I have a 7.40 p.m. flight. So yeah, creeper, leave me be. And Patricia's like, actually, I have a 6 p.m. hair appointment with Maurice. Can you, sweetheart, love of my life, uh, take Monica to the airport for me? Appreciate it. And Jim's like, oh, of course, like maybe we'll get some time to stop and have some drinks and, you know, I can really get this, you know, the tea. I'm like, and he has his arm around her and like pulls her clothes and Patricia's like, huh? no. Okay, maybe she's not trying to cause a scene in front of Jessica, but I would. So <laughs> it's like, what I'm going to need you to do is... Actually, we're going to just call you a taxi because we got money, 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 money. So we're just going to have our driver. Why don't they have a driver? None of them have a driver. They all drive their own vehicles. So like how wealthy are you? You have a country home and you have a townhouse in the city. So why don't you have someone who chauffeurs you around in your Rolls Royce or your Bentley? Now, the sports car, obviously, you want to drive your own sports car because clearly, what's the point of having a sports car if you can't drive it? But especially the mother slash mother-in-law, why did she, she have a driver? Okay, that seems real not super wealthy to me. I'm concerned. They don't even have a staff either. So I'm questioning how wealthy they actually are. It's the little things. It's the little things like that. Anyway, next scene, we're at the city townhouse or the townhouse in the city. You know, their second home with Judith, Jim, and Jessica. It's 8.30 And Jessica is like, Patricia wasn't there, but we were still having dinner at 8.30 because nobody is going to throw off Judith's schedule. Two things. One, if she had a 6 p.m. appointment to get her hair done and she's not there by 8.30, yeah, I'm not surprised. It is never a short time to get your hair done. Now, I don't know what she was all getting done, but even a wash, a set, a a trim, a cut, a color, she's probably having some stuff done. So two and a half hours, I wouldn't be suspicious. I would assume that she wouldn't make it to dinner if she said she had a 6 p.m. hair appointment. Even if the stylist started her exactly at 6 With travel time and actual services, yeah, no, I would not expect her for dinner at 8.30. And second, why are you having dinner at 8.30 every night? What type of life do you live where that's okay? That is super late. And nobody in this situation has a job. So what time are you going to bed? If you're having dinner, like a full-on multi-course dinner at 8.30 every night, Yeah, that's weird to me as well. So Judith is clearly overbearing and controlling. And Jim is just like, okay, mother, 
I really don't have any actual skills, and so I need to stay up under you. So whatever, I'll stop fidgeting when you say stop fidgeting. However, him marrying Patricia was probably the most rebellious thing he ever did. And the one thing that his mom could not prevent him from doing. So he had his little rebellion, but now he's back under her control, even with this wife. So Judith makes a comment that Patricia knows that they have dinner at 8.30 p.m. I don't know why she's there. Maybe she got delayed in dropping Monica off at the airport. So Jessica says, no, we, meaning her and Jim, dropped Monica off. Well, she said, actually, Jim dropped me off here and then went to take Monica to the airport. So Judith is confused by this. Like, well, then why is she late? Dude, she was getting her hair done. So mm, that's why she's late. And y'all don't have a driver. So, mm. but the... I'm sorry, they actually do have staff because somebody from their staff comes in and tells Judith something in her ear, which I'm like, why, would, why wouldn't you tell everybody? Now, I understand Jessica is not family. She's a friend. But the news was there was a fire at the country house, right? So why would you have to whisper that in Judith's ear? Anyway. So then we come back to present day and Jessica is telling Quayle that Jim was devastated when he found out that Patricia had died in the fire because remember she was getting her hair done. He had no idea that she was at the country home or why she was there when they were supposed to have dinner as they always did at the townhouse in the city at 8.30 p.m. And... Quayle is like, yes, this was a, a terrible accident. And Jessica's like, yeah, if it was an accident, why is Jim on trial? Okay. And Quayle is like, I'll prove there's no evidence against Jim. And that Jessica is there to testify about Jim and his wife's relationship, which I'm like, she can't testify about that. She saw them for maybe an hour Everything else, and there wasn't even that much that you can gain from seeing them in that hour six months ago. And maybe she saw them before. They've been married for at least a year. So I don't know. So she's supposed to testify about his devotion to his wife, which she can't, all she can testify to, at least in the U.S., I do not know if this is different in a European judicial system. But you can't testify to what anyone said, what anyone felt, what anyone believed, only to what you saw, what you heard, possibly what you thought, depending on the circumstances. So that I didn't understand. But you can have someone as a defendant, you can have someone testify about your character, right? The type of person you are. However, that opens the door that if there are bad things about you, then all of that information can come in as well because to combat the fact that you're saying that you are this amazing person, 
and basically a saint and would have never committed said crime that you are charged with. Quill further says that he also wants her to testify about the fact that Jim, his mother, and Jessica were all together at the time of the accident. And that she can testify to in part, right? Because there has not been a determination as to when Patricia actually died, right? We just know the time of the fire. That she can testify to. If they say, what, where were you at 8.35 p.m. or even 8 o'clock p.m., she can testify where she was and who was with her. So Jessica is not satisfied because he did not answer her question. And she says that the state and then corrects herself and says the crown, because it's a European judiciary system in Canada. And she says the crown must have evidence proving that it was not an accident. And in fact, a reason for them to believe there's murder. He does not tell her what the crown has and what their position is with regards to why they believe it's murder and are charging Jim. Quayle then has this image of Jessica as just this homespun small town woman, right? Mind you, she is dressed impeccably, okay? Her fashions in this episode, mm, top notch. These suits, and I love a bow. I love a ruffle detail at the neck, okay? Just mm, perfection. And I'm not stepping on Judith. Judith brought it too, okay? Judith came through with the age-appropriate wealthy woman vibe. Nailed it. Nailed it. But Quail is like... Yeah, so do you have a hat, a straw hat, perhaps with some violets? And I'm like, what? She is not the grandmother from the Beverly Hillbillies with just like a straw purse and a straw hat. Now, granted, she did have both of those. Now, she said she never owned any a hat like that in her life. However, Jessica, we all remember Season three, episodes one and two, Death Stalks the Big Top, right? When you were trying to find out if Carl was actually your brother-in-law, Neil Fletcher. So you needed to get into the carnival, right? And you had a straw hat, you had a straw bag, and you had a country accent, okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we remember that. Pepperidge Farms remembers that. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. But then he is just going, he's like, oh, and an umbrella. Yeah. Does he want her to have like lace gloves too? Like, what are we doing? And so <laughs> Jessica refuses to play a countryfied character. Yes, Jessica. Exactly. You are not going to present yourself as something that you're not in court, okay? Let's not play in court, okay? But what gets me is that Quail is so uninformed about who Jessica is and the fact that she 
is world renowned as an author and she's traveled the world because of the extreme success of her novels, plural. So yeah, you're you're trying to make her seem like this country bumpkin when she is a well-rounded, sophisticated, well-educated woman of the world. So get your facts straight. Like, get your facts right before you disrespect somebody. But clearly he's too pompous to even realize that he is ill-informed and mistaken. So unable to get answers from Quail, Jessica meets with Jim and Judith at their city townhouse. And she asks, like, why were you charged? You know, because I only got, quote, pompous platitudes from your attorney. Love it. And she, she's just so graceful about it because somebody else would have told him what he could do with that straw hat. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> so Jim says, well, the crown believes that the fire was deliberately set. And Judith comes in and she's like, thank you for coming. We knew that we could rely on you. And Jessica's like, of course, I would have come sooner, but I had no idea any of this was going on. Because, of course, when she left, it was an accidental fire that tragically took the life of Patricia, you know? So they were mourning Patricia's death. It was an accident. And that was that. That's how she left it. And nobody told her otherwise until, and not even when she got the letter, until she is sitting there right now, does she find out what exactly the reason is that Jim is being prosecuted. And so Judith is like, Jim, you really need to rest. You look very tired. You can't look like this in front of the jury tomorrow. Tomorrow? So you're telling me, you're telling me that this amazing defense attorney, okay, the best in the business, the best in all of Canada, every province in Canada, okay, Oliver Quayle is the man to go to, right? That you have a witness, a character witness, right? That you have not spoken to before this, right? At all. You do not know who she is. You do not know how she may testify. You have not gone over any questions with her. And you bring her up to a different country. Okay, Canada is a different country from the States, okay? We may share a border, but we're different countries, All right. So you bring her up here the day before trial. Okay. The day before trial. That's outrageous. That is outrageous. I would have asked for my money back because I'm like, clearly, if you are pulling these last minute stunts and shows, I'm concerned about your actual ability to represent me in a murder trial. This is crazy. How are you having somebody that you have not talked to and do not know? Okay. Moving forward. So Jim goes upstairs and Jessica and Judith are speaking and Judith says, okay, now what do you think of Oliver Quayle? And she, and Jessica says, one word comes to mind, overpowering. 
And Judith is like, yes, he is the best in Canada. So Jessica's like, I am completely shocked that Patricia was murdered. Again, when she left, it was accidental. And Judith is like, yes, like it is so sad. And Jessica's like, how can they think that Jim is the one who murdered her? They seem so happy together. And Judith is like, yeah, she completely captivated him, which mm, signal, signal, tap, tapping the microphone. Interesting way to put it. And Judith brings up the fact that they knew so little about Patricia and that Jim was really just like a studious, quiet young man and that he has quote, no experience with that sort of person. Red, I'm not saying she's a gold digger. Finish that sentence if you know it. Okay. (laughs) So yeah, like basically Judith is like, we didn't know her. He done went out and married her. She's now part of the family, but she's an experienced woman as opposed to Jim, who is very inexperienced with women, period. So vulnerable. So the next day, next scene, we're in the middle of trial. Okay, the trial has started. And we have Annette, who is the Crown Prosecutor, We have Quayle and, of course, the judge. So Annette is doing a direct examination of the witness, who I believe is the law enforcement officer, Fauchette. And we find out that the gas line to the water heater was disconnected intentionally and that there was the gas jet And flame, I'm assuming, in the kitchen was left open. So when the gas continued to escape and move its way through the house from the basement upstairs, once it hit the kitchen and uh, made contact with the open flame, the entire house exploded, which is extremely dramatic. So Annette finishes her questioning and then turns the witness over to Quayle for cross-examination. And there is a conversation about Miss and the fact that he doesn't want to be rude. He it pays attention to the small details and don't, doesn't want to give her a husband when she doesn't have one. And she's like, if I want one, I'll remember your gracious offer. And there's laughter. None of this would be appropriate in any courtroom in any country. I do not care. I do not care that it is Canada. There is no way in this world that that conversation on the record in open court would be appropriate. That conversation isn't appropriate, period. But especially not in front of a jury, in front of a judge, in front of an audience, those being those in the the courtroom at all, in front of a witness on the stand, in front of a court reporter, that, wow. Okay, wow. I don't, wow. Anyway, so Quayle cross-examines the witness on the only issues that he really can, 
whether he got points or not is to be determined, but he basically gets the witness to admit that he did not see the actual gas jet and flame because the house had burnt down. This is after the fact that he's seeing this, but that his belief that the gas jet was open is because the valve was in the open position. So it was turned on, but we don't know if it was active. So yeah, I don't know if there were any points to be had with that. Like, okay, so how else did the house explode? We all know that it was a gas explosion. And we know that the gas line was disconnected from the water heater. And that didn't happen by accident. Like nobody's claiming that that happened by accident. So I don't understand what point he made with, well, you didn't know if the flame was on or not. That doesn't make a difference. There was a gas explosion. So yeah. So the next witness is Clay McLeod. This is the Crown's witness. And he is the gardener maintenance man. He was the one who winked at Patricia. Now she didn't respond back negatively or positively when he winked at her, right? There wasn't a smirk, a smile, a look of disgust, nothing. She kept a straight face and continued walking. So Annette asked McLeod about... May 7th, which is the weekend before the death slash murder, right? And he testifies that Jim and Patricia were having a loud argument and it was because Patricia wanted a divorce. And Jim said, before I give you a divorce, I'll see you dead. Now the look on Quayle's face indicates that he did not know about this argument, Or if he did, he did not know there were any witnesses to said argument. He looked actually factually surprised. So Quayle then gets an opportunity to cross-examine McLeod. He brings up the fact that McLeod was a mechanic and got his license while in jail, which of course that was objected to and that information was stricken from the record. However, you cannot unring a bell. So the jurors heard this, that this man had been in the penitentiary long enough to get certified as a mechanic. Now, Quayle was trying to connect the fact that he was a mechanic, that he would know how to disconnect a gas line from a hot water heater. And McLeod is like, uh, yeah, anybody can do that with a set of pliers. So it's not, you don't need a license. You don't need to be an engineer or anything like that in order to disconnect the gas line. And so Quayle brings up the fact that McLeod was fired the day after Patricia died. And McLeod is like, yeah, there wasn't much to look after once she was dead and the house was burnt to the ground. So really wasn't anything to maintain there because he did not work in the city home. He only worked at the country estate. 
And Quayle was like, did they give you a reason why they terminated you? And McLeod said, yeah, they said stuff was missing. It wasn't. So Quayle says, oh, you were fired for theft. And McLeod, who is clearly upset about this accusation, says it was a lie. They were just trying to make trouble for me, right? Now, we don't know who fired him exactly. We don't know who made these statements about things missing, etc. So Quayle does accomplish his goal of making McLeod look like he would perhaps lie about this fight in order to stick it to the Harlan family because they terminated him. So the next witness is Dr. Cornwall, who is, I'm assuming, the medical examiner or coroner. I don't know what they call them in Canada. We, these two terms are actually not interchangeable, a coroner and a medical examiner. One, I believe the medical examiner is one that requires a license. Like they went to medical school. They are a doctor. A coroner does not have to have a medical degree whatsoever. They can be appointed or elected, at least in Pennsylvania, right? The coroner, you can just apply. You can be a regular person over the age of 18 and you can apply for that job as a coroner. And you basically would go in and you would be the person who determines if someone is dead, right? And that's it. Like you, you know, like, okay, the person um, is cold and rigid. They're dead? question mark, I guess, get a medical professional to confirm this. It may be different in different states. It may be different in different countries. But to the best of my knowledge, a medical examiner is a doctor, a coroner. It does not have to necessarily be a medical doctor. But anyway, back on track here. Okay. (laughs) Now, this is, this is just information from the early 2000s in Pennsylvania, okay? So I, this is many, many years ago in a different state than I'm in and definitely a different state than the country that we're, definitely a different country than the one we're talking about now. So Dr. Cornwall tells us that the body was destroyed by the fire. There wasn't even enough to fit in a trash bag, which is extremely upsetting, And that she was identified by her engraved jewelry. So her wedding ring and her engagement ring were both engraved with her and Jim's initials. So Annette asked what the cause of death was. And we finally get around to it because Dr. Cornwall wanted to talk about here, there, and everywhere. Everything but answering the question that Annette asked him. So he finally gets around to saying that there was a massive fracture on the frontal lobe of the victim's skull. And Annette says, is that consistent with a blow from a heavy instrument? And Dr. Cornwall says, yes. So Annette asks, was the blow fatal? Dr. Cornwall says, yes. And he determines that the victim where it's Patricia, like there's no switcheroo. It actually is Patricia. We have other episodes where it's like, is it her? Like, is this identity, is this identification correct? Like, is it actually Monica? You know, like we've had some switch body situation. 
And if we haven't, we will. So, yeah. There's definitely a Switch body one. Soon. Maybe in two or three seasons soon. (laughs) Anyway, so Dr. Cornwall says that uh, Patricia died from the blow to the head and not the fire. Now, that is a bold statement. And I will say that because they did not have her entire body, they are unable to determine at what point she received this fracture to her skull. There's no blood to determine if their healing had started or if not, if there was smoke inhalation, meaning that she was still alive when the fire started. So he really can't, that's a guess. It is really a guess and not even a professional guess because he doesn't have enough evidence to determine if the fatal blow occurred prior to her dying from the fire, because it was an extreme blow. Yes. And it fractured her skull, but if she was already dead, it doesn't matter how devastating of a blow it was. So yeah. So the next scene, we are at Quail's office and we have Barnaby, Jessica, Judith, and Jim. And Quail is screaming from another room at Barnaby for a list of doctors because they want to have their own expert testify as to the cause of death, which is reasonable. But also, why did you not have a doctor ready to testify already? That's why I'm like, how great is he? They said he never lost a murder trial, but how many murder trials has he defended is my question because this doesn't make any sense that you would not have an expert to testify, a medical professional expert to testify because their theory is that it was an accidental death, right? That perhaps I'm guessing like Patricia tripped and fell knocked herself out and somehow some way the gas line disconnected. I don't know how they explain the fire, but their whole theory is that the death is accidental and not murder. They don't have to say anything about the fire. They just have to prove that she did not die before the fire. But then I'm like, but mm, he's also charged with the arson. So if they can prove that he committed the arson and she died from the arson, it didn't matter if you proved, oh, no, she was alive at the time of the fire. Yeah, then he murdered her with fire. If she was dead beforehand, then he murdered her and then tried to cover it up with burning down the house. Yeah, I don't, yeah, this ain't curling all the way over for me. How proving that it was an accident did anything when there is the whole issue of arson still lingering out there. But regardless of that, you needed to prove, you want to disprove, I'll I'll put it this way, and you don't have to. A defendant does not have to prove or disprove anything, 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 anything. But if you are putting up a defense that it was an accident. How are, how did you not have a medical professional on deck to come and testify that 
the blow to the head was um, caused by her falling, self-inflicted, not meaning that she hit herself on the head, but she tripped and fell and hit her head on the corner of something and that could have caused that, knocking her unconscious or killing her instantly. So y'all didn't have somebody on deck? That seems, besides the fact that you're screaming from another room and you have your client and his mother and a witness in the other room dealing with Barnaby while you're screaming at him from another room is extremely unprofessional. But two, that you were clearly not prepared to try this case. Like even under your theory, you weren't prepared to try this case. This is outrageous. They needed to get their money back because he got the nerve to be pompous and ill-prepared. Okay. A whole mess. So Jessica is fed up with this. So she goes into Quail's office and tells him, like, clearly Patricia was dead before the fire. And Quail is like, oh, do you have some medical licensure or expertise that we're unaware of? And Jessica's like, uh, it's common sense. Okay, that he seems to have forgotten about common sense because she says the time that it would take for the gas to make its way from the basement to the open flame in the kitchen would have signaled to Patricia if she were alive by the smell that there was something wrong. Everybody knows this, who can smell, who does not have an issue with their sense of smell, can smell gas, okay? It's not carbon monoxide, which is odorless and tasteless and will, and you breathe it in just like oxygen, but it replaces your oxygen and can kill you. So it's not that. This gas, you can smell it. And she would know either to get the heck out of there, first and foremost, go to a neighbor's house, drive away or whatnot, and then call for help because they didn't have cell phones in 1987. But she would have been notified by her sense of smell that there was gas in the house if she was not dead. So long before it made its way into the kitchen and she wouldn't have had an open flame. Right? So, mm, yeah. Common sense. So, Quayle is like, listen, there are a number of ways to defend a murder case. And I have chose the defense that is most likely to succeed. Well, you're wrong, sir. You're very, very wrong. So, the next scene, Jessica is speaking with Jim. And... She actually pulls him to the side, right? I think they're still in Quayle's office. She pulls him to the side and she says, if Patricia was dead before the fire, then you need to be able to account for the time between when you dropped me off and when we all sat down for dinner. At this point, we see Judith in the background looking shocked and upset and walking back into Quayle's office. And... Jim was like, well, you know that I took Monica to the airport. So Jessica is like, well, Monica is the only one who can help establish your alibi for this period of time. But we find out from Jim, everybody's been trying to find her and no one has been able to make contact with her since 
Jim left her at the airport the night of Patricia's death. So Jessica goes back in and Quail to ask Quail if he has been looking for Monica, like what the status is and has he considered her as a witness. Quail says that Jessica's not needed. All of her expenses will be reimbursed by Barnaby and have a good day. Have a good life. Enjoy your trip back to Maine. Jessica looks at Judith, who clearly is the one who said something to Quail. We don't know why as of yet, but clearly Judith is the one who has caused this change in strategy. So the next scene, we have Jessica and Jim are walking outside and Jim says he has no idea why Quail changed his mind. And Jessica is like, I don't understand either. I was hustled up here and then basically given my walking papers. She's concerned because Quail is hanging his entire defense on the fact that Patricia died accidentally and that the gardener's testimony about the fight that they had the weekend before really brings into question whether this was accidental, the timing being what it was, was this an intentional homicide by a husband who did not want to get divorced from his wife and had said, I'd see you dead before I give you a divorce. So Jim says, you know, the fact is Patricia was going through a lot of money and that his mother tried to warn him about it. And the fact is he didn't care about the money, but Patricia refused to account for it. She refused to explain what she was doing with all of this money. He says he did not threaten her. And Jessica says, oh, well, that means that the gardener was lying. But why did he lie? So the next scene, we have Jessica going to the gardener, McLeod's home, right? And so we find out from McLeod that he saw Patricia dead on the floor in the country home prior to the fire starting, right? So the next scene, we're back at trial and Quayle is cross-examining Dr. Cornwall and he gets Dr. Cornwall to admit that Patricia's skull could have been crushed by falling beams that fell as a result of the house burning down. So there's that. Yes, no one can determine whether the blow to the head or the fire was the cause of Patricia's death. So the next witness is Kleber, Mr. Kleber, who is the owner of the Blue Sky Motel. Okay, Motel, Hotel, Holiday Inn, none of these things because they rent by the hour. Okay, the hour. Yeah. Okay that type of motel. So we find out that Kleber rented a room to a person who listed themselves as Monica Blaine from Phoenix, Arizona, that she rented the room at 6.53 p.m. She came in by herself. However, Mr. Kleber saw a man with her 
And he identifies Jim as the person he saw with Monica when she rented the room. Now, he does not know what time they left, but Monica had prepaid. So we don't know how long she paid for. That was never addressed, but he doesn't know what time they left or whether they left together separately. He doesn't know any of those details. So Quail needs some time because he's ill prepared. They should have got their money back. They really should all their money, all of their money back. So Quail asks for some time and to be able to cross-examine this witness at a later time. But instead of adjourning the case to the next day or later that day, they just allow the people to call their next witness. Well, the crown, sorry. The crown to call their next witness, which I'm like, how y'all do that? You can really just, <laughs> how you gonna just jump back into cross-examination of a previous witness? Now, I don't know, again, if that is how things work in that judicial system. But in these states that are united, you have to finish with that witness. Now, you can decide that you do not want to cross-examine them, point blank, period. You can do that. But if you need time, they're going to adjourn for a period of time. They're going to take a break. Do you need 5, 10, 15 minutes, 24 hours? What what do you need? 12 hours? What what, what do you need? Because we're not giving you a lot of time because this is not a super important witness. Now, for you, it's bad for you. Super bad for the defense. But we're not going to give you a, a ridiculous amount of time. But they could have adjourned to the afternoon or if they're in the afternoon to the next morning. But how you jump into the next witness... That seems really inappropriate. But if that's how they do, that's how they do. So next witness the Crown calls is what? Jessica Fletcher. Now, the defense wasn't going to call her, right? They asked her to leave. They were like, deuces. So now the Crown is calling Jessica because I'm sure they're like, ah. Now, they don't know that the defense is not going to call Jessica. But they know that she has, she's a neutral witness. That's what she is. She's a neutral witness. They don't need to treat her as a hostile witness, which would be like Monica. Monica would be a hostile witness for the Crown to call. Because she's somebody who would normally be on the defense side, right? So if the crown is calling her, she would be hostile towards the opposing side. So Jessica isn't deemed to be a hostile witness because she is a neutral witness. She is a fact witness. They can ask her about what she saw, what she heard, and it is perfectly, it is not detrimental to either side. I'll put it that way. So Annette gets out of Jessica a timeline so that they, Jim, Monica, and Jessica left for the airport a little before 6 p.m. 
she was dropped off by Jim at the townhouse in the city at 6.30 or a little after 6.30 p.m. Jim and Monica then left from there to go to the airport. Then at 8.30 p.m., they were to have dinner and did, in fact, have dinner. They expected Patricia to be there after her hair appointment, but they knew that Monica would not be there because she had a flight. Now, Annette then proceeds to testify, right? So you're not supposed to do this, and clearly you you can't do this in Canada either. She's like, so... From 6.30 to 8.30, you have no knowledge of Jim's movements. She says, no. Annette then goes and says, well, that's enough time to go back to the country home, murder Patricia, start the fire, and then return to the townhouse for dinner. And of course, Quayle objects. And of course, the judge sustains it, meaning that She cannot say those things, and I'm sure it'll be stricken from the record. But again, you cannot unring a bell. But what I don't understand is now Quayle is going to cross-examine Jessica. Why? She just set up a timeline. She did not say anything that goes against your defense, Nothing. She does not say it was an accident. She doesn't talk about any arguments. She doesn't talk about uh, any suspicious activity. None of that. She doesn't even say that Jim and Monica had any sort of connection, any sort of sexual tension, nothing. She simply stated facts about a timeline that everybody agrees about. But Quayle, being the jerk that he is and incompetent and ill-prepared, decides to try to destroy Jessica's character for what? For what? There's no reason because her testimony did not hurt your case. It had no effect on your defense. But you decide to try to destroy Jessica's character by bringing up the previous murder conviction. Oh, no. Mm. Murder accusations against her family members and that she was in a sanitarium and that was voluntary. And we know how Jessica gets into researching her books. Like she is for real, for real. Okay. She's on that method actor tip when it comes to writing. But... He, the fact that she even walked past him without punching him in his throat really says a lot about her because there was no reason for this. What also gets me is that Annette did not redirect. She did not get back up there to allow Jessica, ask questions that would allow Jessica to finish her statement and to explain what happened. Now, I don't know if in the Canada judicial system, if you are able to do a redirect, meaning after cross-examination, coming back up and asking questions again. Perhaps they're unable to do that. 
And if so, that makes sense. But if they have that opportunity, I don't understand why Annette did not take the opportunity to allow Jessica to clarify and to explain why, what happened with her two nieces and nephew and herself. So the next scene, Jessica is in the court cafeteria and she bumps into Annette. They sit down and speak with each other. We find out that character assassination is what Quail does. Clearly that is his go-to because he is ill-prepared and he is too much of a pompous jerk to admit that he is not a competent attorney because he's not, he's not. Just because you have all this pomp and circumstance does not make you a good trial attorney. It comes down to facts and evidence that's actually in front of the jury. So there's that. And he's not even a Matlock type character where he's humble and he has a sense of humility and is, I don't know, actually prepared to try a case, you know, a homicide in front of a judge and jury. But Matlock was likable. Perry Mason had a professionalism that still made him, he had respect, right? Matlock had personality and respect. So it worked for them, but he's a jerk. I'm like, if I was a juror, I would not listen to anything he had to say. I, my back would be up the entire time. I don't know how he has won. They said he hasn't lost. That doesn't mean that he's tried all these murder cases. He might've pled people out. So just because he has never lost a murder trial could mean that he's never had a murder trial before. Anyway, let me get back to this before my blood pressure gets too high, okay? Because this is just terrible, terrible. So Jessica asks, like, honestly, honestly, Annette, do you believe that Jim killed his wife? And Annette, being the attorney that she is, says, I'll tell you what I plan to prove. I plan to prove that Jim conspired with Monica to kill Patricia, and so Jessica is like, so you think that Jim killed Patricia and then Monica went back later to set the fire. And Annette says, you should have been a lawyer. But the fact is that we cannot find Monica. We've been trying to find her for months. So the next scene, we have Jessica and Jim in a car. Jim is driving Jessica somewhere. I have no idea. And he finally starts to give more information about the state of his and Patricia's marriage. He says the marriage was sinking fast and they just put on a front for the public. She was going through money and super fast. And even on the day that she died, she had taken out $20,000. And Jessica asked, was that money ever found? And Jim says, no, it must have been burned in the fire. Jim also admits that, yes, in fact, he was with Monica in that motel room doing adult things and that he's not proud of it. So Jessica was like, well, what time did you leave? 
And he said 8 p.m. because I had to get to the city in time for dinner at 8.30. And that Monica took a taxi to the airport. And I'm like, wait, wasn't her flight at 7.40 p.m.? So how is she taking a taxi at 8 p.m.? What flight is she catching? And so Jessica's like, Monica is the only one who can give you an alibi. And of course, he's like, yeah, if anyone can find her. So the next scene, we're in Jessica's hotel room and Judith comes and she apologizes for Quayle's behavior uh, in cross-examining her on the stand because there was no reason for it. Jessica says she understands. Well, I don't understand. I don't. I don't understand. And Judith basically asked Jessica to leave immediately. Jessica is like, yeah, so clearly you're the one pulling the strings. And we find out from Judith what the deal is. So she says that she was upset that Jim basically went behind her back and eloped with Patricia. They had only known each other for a few weeks. So Judith being the concerned mother, and I do not fault her for this. I do not fault her for this portion, this right here. She hired a private investigator because she read Patricia immediately as a gold digger. So she went and she hired a private investigator who found out that Patricia had spent a year in jail in Arizona for embezzling funds from a bank where she had been working. She was also a Las Vegas showgirl at the time that Jim met her. And Jessica comes to the conclusion that Monica was not a college friend, but was in fact Patricia's fellow jailmate, perhaps cellmate. I'm assuming a cellmate. And that's why they're like, oh yeah, we were roommates. Yeah. Because that's the truth. They were sharing a room, but the room is called a cell. And it's in prison, not college. So... Jessica is like, ah, that's where all the money went. They were blackmail payments to Monica. And we find out from Judith that she, in fact, spoke with Monica and paid her a great deal of money to disappear. And Jessica is like, you gave her the money directly? And Judith was like, no, I did it through an intermediary uh, the private investigator. So maybe she didn't talk to Monica. Maybe she did all the communications as well through the private eye. And Jessica asked, did Jim ever admit to murdering Patricia? And Judith says, no. And I believe her. She says, no. And he denies it. And as long as he denies it, I will believe him. Not for nothing. That's how you should be. He Spoiler, he did not murder his wife. So we're cool with Judith supporting her son. Okay. For now. Okay. For now. (laughs) So Jessica goes to Quayle's office. He's not there. So she speaks with Barnaby. And Jedi mind tricks him into showing her the police report where she notices that among the things that were recovered from Patricia's remains, that two rings, her wedding ring and her engagement ring were recovered. 
but there was no mention of the heirloom diamond brooch that she was wearing the last time Jessica saw her before she died. So as Jessica and Barnaby are speaking, the secretary walks in and says that there is a man here looking for Mr. Quayle. It's a private investigator. He mentioned, he tells Barnaby to mention the name Monica Blaine to Quayle and tell him he's going to be at the bar up the street and to bring five large. Long story short, Jessica meets the PI and she ends up being caught by Quayle. Quayle does pay $5,000 and gets the address where Monica is hiding out. Quayle confronts Jessica about what her interference and Jessica says that she believes that he's mangling the defense that they have to acknowledge that Patricia was murdered it was not an accident and Quayle says if we concede that it was murder we concede the case that's not true but okay Jessica says Monica may have been blackmailing Patricia now, Quayle did not know this. And you can see on his face, he didn't know that. And he's interested in this fact. Now, this family has been holding back information from their actual attorney. Now, as much of a jerk and incompetent person that he is, you need to be 100% honest, even with little things and big things, things that don't look good, things that do look good with your defense attorney. Because the worst thing is for something to come out on the stand that you knew that you did not tell your attorney so they could not prepare for it. You're paying good money, even if it's legal aid, right? Even if it's legal aid, so you're not actually paying for it. The only way they can give you an appropriate defense is when they know everything, okay? Everything that you know, they need to know. Everything that your witnesses know, they need to know. You have to be 100% honest with them because if you're not, it's only to your detriment. And that goes for witnesses, for the Crown or for the state, uh, for prosecution witnesses, victims. You got to be 100% honest with the prosecutor because, again, the worst thing that can happen is you get up there, you left information out, you get cross-examined, it comes out. It's something that the prosecutor could have prepared you for and fixed it so that it did not have as devastating of an effect as it would have upon surprise revelation. So whatever your situation is within the criminal justice system, you got to be 100% honest with your attorney. Okay, now the prosecutor is not your actual attorney, but they are the ones who are standing up in court on behalf of the state. So you got to be honest with them. You got to be 100% honest with them. And you definitely have to be 100% honest with your defense attorney. Because how are they supposed to represent you properly if they're being surprised by stuff that you knew? And you paying them money? Come on now or your life is on the line, or your liberty is at stake, and you're not being honest with them, what, there's something wrong with that, okay? So rest assured that you need to be 100% honest, overly honest. Like, if you if you had a dream that you did something wrong, like, hey, listen, listen, what happened once I had this dream, 
Okay. They may be annoyed with you. <laughs> Don't at me, defense attorneys. Um, but anything. And there's some stuff that you may remember later on. It's never too late if you remember something to immediately tell that attorney. So granted, we didn't know about Patricia's blackmailing situation, but Jim sleeping with Monica, mm, that is important, okay? Jim having an argument with his wife saying that I'll see you dead before I give you a divorce. And I 100% believe that he said that. I don't care if he denies that he threatened her. That Because he meant it. It wasn't a threat. It was a promise. That's why. That's how he got around that. I 100% believe that he said that to that woman. Like, oh, oh, I don't know what you think this is. Now, you done spent all this money and you think you were just going to divorce me? What? I let you do whatever, whatever. I'm, I'm dealing with this crazy mother of mine who told me you were a gold digger. And now you want to spend up all my money and now you want to divorce me? I will see you dead before that, okay? I didn't, I didn't get this far. <laughs> you think you're just going to go? I, I believe that fight happened and that as shady as McLeod is, I think he was telling the truth. We then find out that Monica was found and she will testify, right? They had Barnaby fly out to New York. He found the address. He found Monica and flew her back to Canada. Now, Annette overhears this and Annette calls Monica to the stand. In real life, this would not happen. There is no licensed attorney in this world who would put a witness on the stand that they had not spoken to, that they had not prepared, that they did not know anything about. She did not have a conversation with this woman the first. And I don't think Quayle did either, to be honest. So y'all were going to put up a witness that y'all had never spoken to. Both sides are trash for this. That never Never would that happen. Never should that happen. Mind blown. Mind absolutely blown that you would put a witness on the stand and you have no idea what they're going to testify to. You're assuming what they're going to testify to, but you have not had a conversation with them. And it's not just one conversation because she could have lied in that first conversation. You got to prep people. You got to have them come in multiple times to ensure that the story is consistent. And every time someone comes in, they got new information like, oh, did I not tell you that? Yeah, yeah. I've been to jail 15 times. Y'all, you didn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, no convictions, but I've been to jail. You know, like things come out. <laughs> this is just outrageous. So Monica gets on the stand and she lies. She says that Jim had to leave and she had to take a taxi because Jim said he had to go back to the country house and straighten something out with his wife. Jim jumps up and says, that's a lie. That didn't happen. And the judge tries to get the court back in order. This is completely writer's imagination. Completely writer's imagination. 
this would never happen in a court of law. Point blank, period. Well, except for the defendant having an outburst. Like that, that has happened. Yeah, so that that part's real. Like that mm, is something that could actually factually happen. So the next scene, we are in Quayle's office and we find out that he has three ex-wives. All of them were former secretaries. And we hear this from his current secretary who's like, I'm trying to get chose. <laughs> yeah, because he, he has... He has a private jet that he loaned out to somebody for a few months. So it sounds like he probably has more than one because he sent Barnaby to New York. And I'm assuming it was on one of his private jets. So he has money, 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 money. Okay. And so he is fully supporting three ex-wives and his current lifestyle so I can see why his secretary is trying to get chose, trying to be wife number four. Well, ex-wife number four, that is. <laughs> so she ends up looking for an earring. Jessica finds it and she's like, oh, you know, they're not really valuable, but they have sentimental value. Epiphany. So Jessica speaks with Barnaby and she's like, I have an idea, but I don't think that Mr. Quayle will listen to me if I tell him. So Barnaby's like, well, tell me, I'll vet it. And then if it's good, then I will tell Mr. Quayle. Of course it's good, because it's Jessica. Now Barnaby know, Barnaby know. He know who Jessica is. So he goes, Barnaby speaks with Jessica off scene. He then goes in to speak with Quayle. Jim and Judith. And he tells Quayle that McLeod returned to the house after everyone left and likely killed Patricia and stole the brooch. So Quayle is like, actually, you may have something there. And Barnaby continues. He says, well, he couldn't have, it would have been stupid of him to pawn it or sell it. He may be a thief, but he's not stupid. So he probably has it hidden somewhere in his home. So Quayle says, get on the phone with the judge and get a search warrant for McLeod's house. So the next scene, we are at McLeod's house. There's a car out front. However, no one's home. Judith driving her own full-size Mm, I can't tell if it's a Mercedes or a Jaguar, some I'm surely expensive vehicle. And she goes in and she's hiding the brooch in McLeod's home when Jessica and Annette pop in to the kitchen. Now, Annette, as a Crown prosecutor, could easily get a search warrant and quickly get a search warrant, but she just pop up there like some matlock. Okay, she's not even with the police. She's not even with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Nobody. It's just her and Jessica. I'm like, what if this old lady had a gun? Because she looked like the type that would have a small pearl handled pistol just ready in her bag. And she already got on leather gloves. She she looked like she'd murder somebody and not think twice about it. Like, mm, I guess I'm going to throw this coat out and buy me another one. Y'all bold for just going in there just unaccompanied 
So we find out from Judith that the brooch was a present from her father to her mother and her mother cherished it. And Jessica was like, yeah, I had to think to myself, who would have taken an antique brooch, regardless of the fact that it's all diamonds, but would leave a five carat diamond ring. And I'm sure that that diamond ring would be easier to pawn than this antique readily identifiable brooch. And Judith says that Patricia's 6 p.m. appointment was not to get her hair done, but it was to meet with Judith. She was going to confront Patricia with what her private investigator found out. She offered her a very large settlement to divorce Jim quietly without scandal. At this point, Patricia became abusive and actually hit Judith. Now, we only have Judith's side of this, but Patricia looked like she would slap somebody. So uh, both of them, both Judith and Patricia, looked like they would get with you. So Patricia picked the wrong one because she wasn't some little old lady. She was like, what we're not going to do is this. So Judith then reached around to find whatever she could. She found, got hold of a fireplace poker and hit Patricia in the head, apparently with enough force to crack her skull and kill her immediately. Yeah, that sounds impossible. 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 Anyway, so that, that's what they would have us to believe. That this little old lady, now she's not little, little, but like this woman of a certain age who has never had to work a day in her life and has been wealthy since birth, okay, is going to pick up a fireplace poker and bash somebody over the head once, once, hit them once, this person who's significantly younger than them, hit them once. Maybe she was turned the other way, so she hit her in the back of the head. But that was enough to kill her instantly. That is impossible. I can't believe they would have us to believe that because we don't. But that, that, mm, that's what they say. That's what they say. So Annette says, that means that you're the one who disconnected the gas line. Judith says that she did. She had calculated the time it would take her to get back to the city home prior to the fire starting. So yes, she is. She's a smart one. She's a smart one. She almost got away with it. But Jessica says you couldn't bear to see your mother's brooch destroyed. And that is what got her caught. So Annette then is leading her outside and Judith turns around to Jessica and says that she never would have let Jim be convicted for a crime that she had committed. All right. I I don't believe that. I don't actually believe that because she would have justified in her mind that he is young or than her. He can sit, he could do his 20 years. She would die in prison. She would die in prison and he would be destroyed and distraught. So he can handle prison for 20, 25 years, whatever. 
okay? Because they're not out here killing people in Canada. So that wasn't even a concern. He can go. Maybe Canadian prisons are better than U.S. prisons. So maybe it wouldn't be so terrible. You know, he chose that woman. He There are consequences to your decisions. And so maybe spending 20 years in a Canadian prison is the consequences of eloping with a gold digger without having her vetted by your mother. She would have justified not saying anything. She would have been like, oh, I did all that I could do. I got him the best defense attorney in all of Canada. I paid that Monica woman to disappear. You know, um, I thought that was the right thing to do. And uh, it didn't work out that way. And he was convicted. So mm, I'm sorry, but mm, he's, he, he can do it. He can do the time. He's young. He's young. He'll be fine. Yeah, I, I definitely don't believe that she would have said no. Perry Mason style. I'm the one who did it. It was me. No, she would have sat there in her pillbox hat and not say anything. So the last scene, we're back in Quail's office. Jessica is there just to say goodbye. And uh, Quail is like, yeah, but you're going to be back in a few months to testify on behalf of Judith. And Jessica's like, I'm going to skip that one. And I don't blame her because Quail is a terrible human being. He really is. Judith had her reasons, but she needs to suffer the consequences of her actions and had she just been honest and said what happened and not try to set the ha- and not actually blow up the house and had went and called the police and say she attacked me uh I didn't know what to do I hit her in self defense wasn't nobody got throw that old lady in jail nobody would have thrown her in jail she would have been fine if she had done that and call the police. But no, she want to cover it up. She want to blow up the house and all of this, right? That's where she went wrong. And taking that brooch. Girl, whatever, whatever. You should have got that brooch back as soon as, well, one, my question is why did the son even have it? He wasn't married yet. So why would she have given him the brooch? I would have held on to it. I'm like, you gotta have to get this out of my cold dead hands. When I die, I before I die, I will give it to my granddaughter, you know, or if I like your wife, then I'll give it to her to then pass down to her daughter and her daughter, et cetera, et cetera. Or to the son, if there's not a daughter, you know, to keep it in the family. But uh, why did he have it in the first place to be able to give it to Patricia is my question. I would have just demanded it back and he would have got, gave it back to you. He would have just gotten a replica done for his wife and given you the original back and you wouldn't have to murder anybody. Yeah. Well, accidentally kill somebody, but then cover it up with arson. So yeah, that old lady going to spend some time in prison that not double digit years. I think at the very least, Quayle can convince a jury if it even gets to trial because the Crown may work a plea deal out for her. So maybe they'll give her some probation, maybe just a taste of jail or maybe no jail, something, right? Because I think they would believe that 
it was self-defense. But she gonna have to pay something for blowing that house up. Okay, it was her own house, so there's that. But whatever resources they used um, to go in, because that's dangerous for firefighters to go into a home that is probably very unstable and unsafe because of the fire damage. So yeah, maybe they'll give her some probation, maybe a taste of jail. Maybe not prison, maybe not some years, because she's old. So maybe... I don't know. Maybe Annette is like, screw this. Forget this. She going for a good 20 years. She about to die in prison. I don't know. Maybe the crown prosecutors are gangster like that. And <laughs> like, I don't care if it's an old lady. She knew what she did. So she can spend some time thinking about it in prison. Okay. But she got money, money. So she ain't even gonna have the same prison experience as everybody else. So... There's that. Anyway, so that's that on that. Um, I did enjoy this episode. I truly dislike Quail. Oliver Quail can kick rocks with no shoes on. There you go. That's how I feel about him. Uh, he is a trash human being. Okay? Trash. But other than that, I think this was a good episode. I am happy that uh, Chris Allport did not have to play the worst character in the episode like he did in If the Frame Fits. So that's a positive. (laughs) No, but this was a good episode. I enjoyed it. Next week, we will be talking about old habits die hard. We are in a nunnery. So yeah, but it's a good episode. (laughs) But anyway, until then, you can find me on Instagram at the Fletcher Files pod on Instagram, on Facebook meta at the Fletcher Files pod page Or, of course, as always, link in the description box for Patreon, the Fletcher Files pod on Patreon. And I have some new stuff coming out this month. Yes. And next month, the month of April, there will be weekly drops on my Patreon. So there is that. And coming up, This spring into summer through the rest of the year. What? Reviews of The Law and Harry McGraw. So you better get into this Patreon because you got to catch up. You got to catch up. All right. But until next Sunday at 5 p.m., you guys promise me you will have an amazing week and I will do the same. Until then. Bye.